You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Karen Slaughter back on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. It's called False Witness, and uh, if you love thrillers the way I do, this is a must-have uh, for your to-be-read pile this year. And uh, going into the the hot months of summer, there's nothing better than cur- curling up in the cool with a great Karen Slaughter book. False Witness is available everywhere now. When you're hearing this, we'll put links to it in the show notes where you can grab it. Welcome back to the show, Karen. Thank you. So, Karen, I, I uh, it it's been kind of a weird year, you know, yeah. since, we, since we talked last time. And um, how? First off, how have you fared uh, during the pandemic, and and how are all you and all the people that you care about? Well, you know, I've been exceptionally lucky because I do a job that allows me to stay at home. Uh, Also, I'm kind of built for the quarantine lifestyle. I'm very introverted. So, you know, not going out was not a big uh, sacrifice for me. Um, But, you know, like most people, I I was affected by it. Um, My sister caught COVID very early on. I was really worried about my father because he's had health issues, you know, so when the vaccines came around, I was extremely happy to drive him to get his first and second dose uh, of the vaccine. Um, And, you know, I just uh, I look at the world and I just wonder where we're going to go from here. You know, like a lot of people, I wonder that. You know, it it is kind of weird because um, even though, uh, you know, for for most people that are writers, um, your case is very similar. You know, we work from home. Um, a lot of time is is spent, you know, kind of solitary and just, just you and a computer or you and a notebook or, you know, however you do it. But there, there is this weird mental aspect, uh, to it that is kind of knowing that everyone outside of your front door is going through the same thing that you are. And, and I, I know that it has, changed people's creativity and their creative process it, it's it's kind of weird how how those things seep in it is you know and every author i know but one mary Kay andrews who can go to hell uh was really <laughs> taxed and she was like yeah i finished my book early i went to the beach i'm like yeah well you suck um right. <laughs> but every author i know was was just anxiety anxiety filled uh, about this and you know, watching the number of people die, worrying about the hospitalizations. Many of us who write um, thrillers that have a medical component, we're hearing from some of our medical advisors about hard it, how hard it was. A lot of us uh, talked to police officers who, of course, were on the front line, uh, firefighters, people of that nature who have these jobs where they have to be out in the middle of it. And You know, many of us do volunteer work with prisons and things like that. And we know that prisons 
really suffered from the pandemic in a way that uh, a lot of assisted care homes did because people were just trapped there. A lot of people don't know that they charge you for soap in prison, uh, that, you know, access to the showers is kind of a, a courtesy they provide. Uh, you know, they weren't allowed to have hand sanitizer because of the alcohol content. So a lot of inmates lost their lives. You know, they went into prison for maybe a, a drug charge or a check cashing charge, and it ended up being a life sentence. And of course, we have a lot of good people who work in prisons too, and they brought it home. So it was very anxiety inducing from my privilege perspective. I can't imagine what it was like for people who were out there in the middle of it and dealing with it on a daily basis. And you did something uh, that that not a lot of other authors that I've that I've talked to um, wanted to do. Uh, and that's that in your latest book, False Witness, you actually include um, the covid uh, pandemic as a, an event that happens in the book as well. And and so many authors have have shied away or maybe not shied away. That's maybe not the the right. I don't want to disparage someone who didn't uh, choose to write about it, but it, it was a bold choice to include that. Um, well, why? I think it bold. Uh, it, a lot of times it felt crazy <laughs> to be doing it. <laughs> but, you know, I did like Lisa Unger. I talked to her and she made a really valid point, which is I write escapism or, you know, other authors. And the only one I talked to who was going to include it is Mike Connolly. And he actually put it in his Lincoln lawyer book for last year. He mentioned the very beginning of the pandemic and, really captured that uncertainty through the lens of someone who was in a a, a, a prison in an incarceration situation. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, if Mike can do it, I can do it. I'll wait and see if people give him crap for it. No one seemed to. But, you know, as a greater service, I suppose, is a, a, a way to look at it, because I do think it's important for crime writers to capture social what is going on in society, you know, back to Dickens writing about street urchins and uh, the chasm between the haves and the have nots. Um, I felt very important to capture the weirdness that we were going through and the devastation and the difference between someone who, in this case, Lee Collier is a lawyer at a white shoe firm. She's fairly protected from the virus. You know, everybody around her is taking it seriously and wearing masks. And then her sister, Callie, who lives in the margins of society, for her, all of those those protections are just kind of a joke because her her life precludes being able to look after her own health and safety. Uh, so I wanted to write about that. I wanted to talk about things that maybe textbooks won't mention, like, uh, you know, the run on toilet paper or the fact that in Atlanta, for instance, a lot of the distilleries couldn't sell booze, so they started using their distilleries to uh, make hand sanitizer. So everywhere you yeah. went, people's hands smelled like tequila or rum, you know. <laughs> so I, that's the kind of stuff I wanted to put in there. Uh, and so, you know, I, I incorporate it into the book. It's not about COVID, but it takes place in the time of COVID. And it was a really delicate balance. You know, I was really careful I went back and did a, a word count on how many times I'd use mask and other things because I just didn't want the pandemic to intrude in what at its heart is hopefully for people a heart stopping, uh, pulse pounding kind of thriller. 
if you can have both of those things at the same time. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, most in, in you, uh, you mentioned it a minute ago, kind of the the escapism uh, of novels that, you know, we we dig into into thriller novels because we want to we want to live through uh, we want to live vicariously through someone's experience that's worse than ours. And we want to get the adrenaline rush that they get. But from the comfort of our own reading chair, um, the by including um, the the pandemic and, and what readers will actually be going through or at least went through in recent memory. Um, in, instead of escaping from it, do you think that that having us live through it through through the characters and the story going through it, do you think that helps us to kind of compartmentalize and to to deal with the realities of you know? I, I guess let me let me say it like this: that um, by by us dealing with it through the the lives of our characters, does that help us as readers? to also find a proper place mentally for the the things that are going on in the world? I would hope so. You know, it it is a good idea in fiction, I think, to transport people, but also to hold up a mirror to society. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we in the United States have the great luxury because of vaccinations to kind of be at that point where we realize the light at the end of the tunnel isn't another train, though the Delta and Lambo variant, who knows. Uh, But for right now in this moment, there is a little bit of hope. And I think that I wanted to capture that in the book, that even though, you know, some bad things happen, there is hope at the end of the day. There's the ability to go on. Uh, But mostly, you know, we're all experiencing a trauma right now. And we know from studying childhood trauma, for instance, that later as an adult, you can develop all kinds of horrible things like heart disease, diabetes, and you're more likely to have struggles with addiction and alcoholism. And, you know, the list goes on, depression, suicide, whatever. So it makes me wonder, where are we going to be in 20 years? And that plays off in the book as well, because you have Callie and Lee, who experienced something really horrific when they were younger, and now we catch up with them 20 years later, and we see the fallout of that. So, you know, what's going to happen to the kids right now who are going through this? How is it going to manifest itself as they become adults? Looking for a tool to help you visualize your story before the drafting begins? PlotPens is cloud-based and optimized for any device. There's nothing to download. From the new writer who isn't sure how to tell their story to the veteran who can increase their productivity dramatically, we've had experienced writers lay out a detailed structure for several novels in a series in a matter of a few days. The app takes you through four steps of the process, the concept or logline. Make sure you have a solid concept that you can keep coming back to throughout the process. The outline, 12 beats and three acts, each has a description of what should be happening with examples. The board, 40 cards. We take the 12 beats and add sub-beats to those, breaking it down even further and being very specific about what should go into each. These also have examples and descriptions. Right. We take those 40 cards and turn them into a to-do list. For a 50,000-word book, it's about two cards per chapter, roughly. We have a beautiful editor built into the app. You can export your manuscript to a PDF anytime with the click of a button. 
Let Plot Pens help you visualize your writing project. Use code HANK10 to get 10% off Plot Pens. PlotPens.com. Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20 or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting. And we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. Well, Karen, before anyone gets the wrong impression, false witness, uh, even though it happens that the story takes place while the the COVID pandemic is happening, um, the book is not about the COVID pandemic. That That's sort of a, a backdrop for the story. Um, when you first started thinking about false witness um well first off you've written um series that we as readers love the will trent series the grant county series um how do you how do you decide when you first start thinking about about a book is this going to be part of a series that you've already written are you going to use characters that that you've already established and the world is already built um uh so to speak uh, as opposed to writing a standalone, false witness is a standalone that that doesn't uh, fall into one of these series. How do you decide in the beginning where this story is going to live? You know, the story tells me because there are clearly some things that work for the Will Trent and Sarah Linton world as opposed to needing standalone characters. You know, in some ways, the stakes can be a lot higher in a standalone because you literally have no idea who they are, what their kind of destiny is. Um, for me, it each approach has a different way about it. You know, when I'm writing a standalone, I do have to create a new world and new characters. But when I'm writing a Will and Sarah book, I have to talk about them in a way that's familiar to readers who have been there from the beginning, but also say some new things to keep them interested. And, you know, because I don't want to 
want them to feel like they're being hit over the head with information about the characters. But I also have to find a way to give a little bit of their backstory for new readers so that they can understand where the characters are coming from if, if they've never read the book. So, or the series rather. So, you know, each one has its pluses and minuses, but I will tell you that False Witness, the idea for it came to me about three years ago because I, I had Lee Collier very firmly in my mind and I was looking for a story to tell about her and it just all started to come together. So in February of 2020, I was in Miami talking to my editor about it because the HarperCollins uh, International Sales Conference is in Miami generally when people can travel. And we were walking around Brickle Key discussing this story and saying, oh, wow, you know, some people uh, on the West Coast are sick. I wonder if that's going to be a thing. And it wasn't really part of our dialogue until I got home and she got home. And I mean, she was almost one of the last flights out of the country before the lockdowns happened. And I remember having a long conversation with her about, you know, I want to include the pandemic. And she was, of course, you know, well, no one wants a pandemic book. She was thinking in sales terms. Uh, fortunately, she lets me write whatever I want to write. So she trusted me to make this book at its heart. You know, it's a love story. It's about two sisters who really care about each other and who are the most important people in each other's lives. But because of this past tragedy, that they both experienced, it's very difficult for them to be together. Uh, and they tend to only come together when stuff that's bad is happening. And, you know, unfortunately, they're in a Karen Slaughter book, so a lot of bad stuff happens to them. But, you know, if you, you strip down every part of the story, it's really, to me, what it's always been about three years ago is this woman and her sister and what are their lives like after this horrific experience that they shared happens. How do they move on from that? And it just, you know, it played out well, putting it in the time of the pandemic. This is uh, not the first book uh, that deals with a sister relationship that that you've written. Is, is there something special about that relationship that uh, that intrigues you? Well, yeah, you know, in my Grant County series, Sarah is really close to her sister. And in, you know, the ones where she's in with Will Trent, you get... Tessa's out of the country, but she's still very much a presence there. I just think it's a really important relationship. And sometimes they're really good. Sometimes they're really bad. But they help frame who you are as an adult in many ways. And I like talking about character. I love going into character development. I, it's a really important part of the stories I tell because I feel like it's very important for you to care about the characters because if you don't, what I'm writing about could, you know, come off as too much or exploitative or too dark. You know, how I lighten that up is through these relationships. And I, I do enjoy writing that sister relationship. I'm the youngest in my family of three girls. And uh, so it's also an opportunity for me to let the youngest sister get the last word and to be the most clever and beautiful <laughs> and funny. Of course, of course. Being the youngest in my family, I completely concur with that. Yeah, there's strength in being the baby. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you meant you said a minute ago that you had the character of Lee Collier, and was uh, th there's not your words, but you, you said you're looking for a story for her. Um, is is that normally how it works for you? That that a character comes first, and and you uh, 
they kind of live with you for a while before you find something to put them in. Is is that a normal story um, creation process for you? For a standalone, yes. You know, obviously, if it's a Will and Sarah book, I know who the characters are. It's more sure. about what what horrible thing can befall them that makes me <laughs> want to write about them next. Um, but with a standalone, it does start with character because they need to be individuals. They need to stand on their own and be interesting and have different layers to them. And so I do a lot of thinking about them as people. You know, what music would they like? How do they interact? For Lee in particular, I saw this cartoon. I read mommy blogs, one, because they're hilarious, but two, because I write about Faith Mitchell in my Will and Sarah books. And she's one thing that I would never be, not that I know of, which is a mother. So I have to research how women feel. One, not crazy about their children most of the time, which is understandable because if I was going to tar- start a terrorist organization, I would duplicate the actions of a toddler uh, with the sleep deprivation, the you know, the screaming, the psychological mind games they play. Uh, so I was looking at this mommy blog and I saw this cartoon of the different kids you see at a school play, which I have never had to go s- sit through. Uh, and so that was something interesting to me and I printed it out and I started thinking about the opening scene in False Witness, which is, you know, Lee sitting in this auditorium thinking that now that her daughter is an older teenager, she's not supposed to not have to sit through these painful uh, junior high slash elementary school uh, school plays. But she finds herself there because her daughter is working behind the scenes doing stage props and stuff. So that was something that was really set in my head. And then I had to find something horrible to happen to her. <laughs> um, I, I was reading uh, it, a Goodreads page, and uh, uh, I think I was reading through some of the, the early reviews of False Witness and what some people had to say. And this uh, statement jumped out at me. Uh, it's it's screaming, crying, and hyperventilating are my regular actions each time I'm reading another Karen Slaughter novel. Um, having a reputation like that, Karen, where you do horrible things to your characters and by extension to your readers, um, is it a challenge that with each new project to up the ante and to, um, you know, to find new ways to do horrible things to people? Well, I mean, yes and no. What's important to me is the characters. So, you know, I... From my first book, I've written about horrible things. So it's not the horrible thing that's the hard part. It's how does my character respond to it? You know, how do I talk about violence, particularly in this novel, violence against women in a different way? And how do I show that it's a really bad thing? Because we tend to soften language about sexual violence against women, Um, you know, like especially domestic violence women themselves will say, well, you know, I hit him. And you think, oh, well, he must have been terrified that you were going to kill him. You know, (laughs) that's exactly the same thing as him hitting you. Um, And so I want to talk about those nuances and really explore the way specifically women think about violence against women, because I write about sometimes characters who aren't very sympathetic Uh, who find themselves in a really bad way and who are making bad choices. And I try to challenge our preconceptions about 
who deserves to be called a victim and who doesn't, uh, because we really do a lot of that in society. And so I, that's always been my focus is how can I craft a character around the story where I talk about the fallout of violence, uh, what it does to people, what it does to communities, men and women and children living in these communities where this sort of thing goes on. And I'll tell you, the main reason I started writing about that so openly was my own experience growing up and seeing my grandmother, who was horrifically abused by my grandfather. And we would go to my grandparents' house for Sunday dinner. And, you know, I remember my uncles teasing my grandmother about being so clumsy because sometimes she would have a black eye or a cut lip or occasionally a broken bone. And as I got older, I thought, wait a minute, nobody is that clumsy. My my grandfather's just beating the hell out of her. And I know from that experience that being silent about it and pretending it wasn't happening only helped my grandfather. It did not in any way help my grandmother. And in fact, it aided my grandfather, that silence. And so when I started writing my books, I thought I'm not going to I'm not going to help the abusers. I'm not going to make my work an an apologist polemic for men who abuse women or men who just generally hate women. You know, I want to talk about it for what it is. I want to show that good women and bad women find themselves in these situations. You know, if we want to use those labels, good men and bad men are out there. And I want to talk about the gray that exists between all of that. Karen, you you mentioned um, uh, characters that are sympathetic, and and uh, and you talked about good characters and bad characters, and and when you're when you're talking about things like abuse and um, uh, you know some of the the darker aspects of life, one tendency as a writer is to uh, take someone who has been through. Uh, some horrific situations, abuse and and things like that, and to make them um, a Mary Sue for for lack of a better term to, you know, to uh, and and you don't do that. You, you show us the good, the bad, the 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 good choices that come out of that, the bad choices that come out of that. And the chips just kind of fall where they fall. And I guess the, my question is. How do you take a character and make them believable, true to what life deals people, and make them sympathetic at the same time? There, there are some very sympathetic characters in your books who are not – they're – they're people that make horrible choices and and things that as we're reading, we're like, no, don't do that. And they do it anyway. And you still love them. Um, what is, what's the balance like in creating a character that is believable, true to the world, true to human nature, yet still likable for the reader? That that has to be a, a tough fence to walk. It is. And, you know. So a lot of times you're right. We see these these women who've had bad things happen and they're delicate creatures or they're wearing, you know, leather pants and driving a motorcycle. And, you know, <laughs> that's their response, which is a very male way of looking at things, you know, and, and generally they're saved by the hero making love to them. But that's not really the case, you know, I mean, not to d- diminish men's role in supporting their their spouses, their sisters or whoever who have been abused. 
but it's something that a woman has to go through on her own. She's completely alone. And men who have been sexually assaulted as well. And it's messy. And we know statistically that people who suffer sexual assault tend to be more um, more prone to alcoholism, depression, drug abuse. I mean, all the things that I talked about earlier with trauma. I mean, sexual assault is a trauma. People who go through it have post-traumatic stress syndrome for the most part. You know, not everyone, but for the most part. And for women, when they experience something bad, their tendency is to punish themselves and blame themselves. And so they they can make really bad choices that they wouldn't make otherwise. You know, I I always liken a sexual assault to the crime of murder because you take who that person was going to be and you murder that person. They will never feel the same safety or power inside their bodies that they felt before that was momentarily taken away from them. And so that's what I want to write about is the sloppy side of it where, you know, recovery isn't all rainbows and ponies and that sort of thing. It's really hard work. You know, it's why some women identify themselves with the word survivor because they feel like they've survived a war. It's why some women don't attach the word victim to themselves. They want to get some of that power back. And every woman, every man's experience is different as a response to sexual assault. And I want to write about the different responses that you see on the spectrum, not just the idealized version where she gets an AK-47 and, you know, kills everybody who ever wronged her or he goes on a, you know, a murder spree or whatever. I mean, I want to write about what I know happens in the real world. False Witness is one of those books that uh, lingers with you when you finish it. When you close that back cover, uh, these characters stay with you. And from the title that has, uh, you know, biblical uh, aspirations, you know, the False Witness to the this relationship between these sisters that uh, it, it's it's interesting when you see that it's such a believable relationship because when people have been through trauma siblings especially uh when they get back together they invariably just relive the bad over and over and over again and they can never break that cycle and have a relationship outside of that shared trauma and and uh and, and false witness uh you know is, is a fun ride through that if you can if that's something that you can say um when when people finish this book Karen and they close that back cover what do you hope they're left with well, primarily, I love that it's a, a good story, you know, so that's I want them to feel like, wow, that was a great book. I really enjoyed it. It gave me all the things that I wanted when I bought it, because, um, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a storyteller. So that's very important to me. But if they pull some deeper meaning from it, I mean, that's great, too. Uh, one of the things I do when I write a standalone is when I get about halfway through the book, I go back and I read it from page one. And what I'm checking for is, you know, these are new characters. Is their voice consistent throughout? Is their voice different from other characters? Uh, is what they're doing by the middle of the book, does that make sense based on the person you met in that first chapter? Is that in keeping with their personality, their morality, all these things? And one thing that it really surprised me when I did this, uh, 
was I thought, holy crap, I can't believe how much our lives have changed, you know, with wearing masks, with how quickly that became incorporated into our everyday world. And, you know, being on the other side of it, it's like, wow, I cannot believe that's how we were actually living. And hopefully we'll not have to live that way again, at least in our lifetimes, Hank. Uh, but, um, you know, it, it was really eye-opening to me to read that. But also I thought, this is a book uh, that's a, a little different from the usual structure of one of my novels. Um, in that you know a lot up front that you normally don't know. And I was very pleased with how I was able to pull that off. So I think people are going to see a lot of twists and turns and they're not going to know what's coming next or even how it's going to end until they get to that last page. And I, I hope they're satisfied with it. What are you working on now, Karen? Oh, my next book for next year. Uh, <laughs> I am, uh, I'm very excited about it. Um, I've been writing on it a little bit, but I can't tell you much about it. No title, no nothing. Um, but I hope the people are pleased with it. False Witness is available everywhere now. When you're hearing this, you can grab it in Kindle edition or hardcover or audiobook. We're going to put links to uh, all of those formats in the show notes of this episode. Karen, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the amazing stuff that you have done and continue to do, where can they uh, find you online? Uh, I'm everywhere. KarenSlaughter.com, my Facebook page if you want to see lots of pictures of cats, um, Instagram, <laughs> Twitter. What have you. You can find me. I'm like a bad penny. I just keep showing up online. We'll put links there uh, to all those places in the show notes as well. Karen, always a pleasure to catch up. False Witness, one of my favorite books of the year. We're going to send everyone to pick up a copy of it. Thank you for taking time to come back on the show. Thank you. Wargate Books presents Hit and Fade. Forgotten Ruin, Book Two by Jason Onspach and Nick Cole. Narrated for you by Christopher Ryan Grant. Chapter 1. The army of the dead walked straight into our ambush east of Fortress Hawthorne. That's what the fob is called now, Fortress Hawthorne. Despite it being officially known as Forward Operating Base Hawthorne, as was originally intended when the 50 detachments of various special operations groups came forward through time from Area 51. A one-way mission to save Western civilization from a rampaging nano-plague, destroying the very fabric of said civilization. Apparently, we overshot the temporal insertion point and stuck the landing. Sorta. About 10,000 years too late. Said civilization is now basically something straight out of Tolkien, or Dungeons and Dragons, which we've all now gotten a lot more familiar with thanks to our resident expert and fledgling hedge wizard, the infamous P.F.C. Kennedy. But the Rangers just call it the FOB. The first of our explosives to ruin the leading elements of the Army of the Dead advancing on us Claymore mines the recaptured forge back at Hawthorne had cranked out in the weeks after we'd retaken it from King Triton were fired by Ranger Sergeant Kang down there with the scouts and Captain Knifehand's assaulters. 
It was close to midnight when the front rank of bony warriors, carrying rotting shields and spears, eyes glowing malevolently in the deep night mist, advanced into our ambush, only to get ruined by the daisy-chained Claymore's sudden eruption. Above us, a cloud-shrouded moon cast a wan yellow light over the battlefield. The night was hot, and spring was coming on full now. The pilots who'd gotten us here in the grounded C-17 back at Ranger Alamo, using their meteorology skills, had guessed it was going to be a long, hot summer ahead of us, and an early one at that. But there was a cold shiver in the dark on your exposed skin that you couldn't quite explain when you saw the dead advancing rank after rank. The bone warriors carrying spear and shield other, darker creatures barely seen. The lower areas of the earth were graveyard cool and misty, so maybe that was it. Still, the brutal, unrelenting cold of our almost last stand back at Ranger Alamo was gone now. But not the horrors. There wasn't a night that some ranger didn't wake up out of a tormented sleep, breathing heavy, sidearms scanning the dark and looking for orcs and ogres to ventilate. I was sweating in the hour leading up to the attack, despite the night and the mist. Kurtz had us humping hard to get the 240 and all its ammo up to the top of a small hill that overlooked the area where we'd channel the advancing echelons of the Army of the Dead into further fun and games the rangers had planned at a bend in a riverbed. If the approaching army of the dead continued on their current course track, they'd enter it for a brief period. It was decided by the captain, we'd kill them there. And I was sweating. Not because of fear. No, not at all. Firing whispered Sergeant Kang over the calm as he detonated the mines. And eight daisy-chained claymores spat thousands of steel balls all across the front line of what even I was still finding it hard to believe I was seeing through my night vision device. Skeletons. Warrior skeletons. Ancient warriors like something out of the Bronze or Iron Ages. Worked breastplates of molded plate or rotting scales, green and tarnished, stamped with the markings of fabled armies fallen in battles long, long ago. Leather cuirasses on some, rotting boots, helms with broken horns, missing teeth, tattered leather kilts, beads and charms dangling from bone wrists, enigmatic holy signs and primal torques black with grave dirt, or from a funeral pyre long ago on some forgotten battlefield far from here, draped about the spine where the throat should be. Where it rises to connect to a bone-white skull that seems filled with malevolent purpose and diabolical intelligence. Malignantly so. Walking skeletons like something out of a Ray Harryhausen clay model Sinbad epic from the 1960s. Above, the sliver of moon gave enough light to strengthen our NVGs, making the night vision devices perform exceptionally well as we sprang our trap and watched the advancing elements get rocked by our initial high-explosive opening bid.
in the game we were about to play. The air was still and hot in the moments before the fight began as we lay there in the tall, sharp grass, waiting for it all to go down. I was thinking a hot cup of coffee would be nice about now, except my canteen only had cold coffee I'd brewed during the long, silent, and windy afternoon of preparation. Still, I was happy knowing I had some, rather than none. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no farther than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical, yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started.